This is Dear Analyst, episode number 45, and in this episode, I'm going to be discussing how you should be thinking long-term for structuring your data, specifically for the purposes of putting your data into a pivot table in Excel or Google Sheets for further analysis. And the data set we'll be using for this episode is a U.S. public food assistance data set that I found on Kaggle. And it looks at fiscal year 2019 data for the SNAP program, which is a uh, public food assistance program here in the United States. And the data set contains the cost of the program, the number of households that participate in the program, the number of the total number of people that participate in the program across all states in the in the United States. It's a really interesting data set, and it also talks about the, the person that created this data set on Kaggle talks about the difficulty with getting this data set. Um, just for those of you who are not familiar with SNAP, it stands for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. I think it's been around since uh, 2015, I believe. Probably can double check on that. Anywho, getting government data, uh, especially here in the United States, is is very tough because it's spread across different agencies. It's not properly formatted across different agencies. And the difficulty, some, I think the main difficulty is that it's also aggregated in different ways. So you might have it aggregated in a certain way from this agency, but then another agency has it all laid out in a denormalized fashion, which we'll talk about in a bit. And the data set is just not Data, data is just very hard to consolidate and standardize when it comes to the U.S. government. Why is structuring your data important? So when someone tells you that structuring data is important, I think it's kind of a bit of a trite platitude. It's, of course, you know you have to structure data important. You have to structure a lot of things to make things work. But in the context of Google Sheets and Excel, why is structuring your data important? I would argue that 95% of the time when you are putting data into a spreadsheet, it should be in a format that's that's appropriate for analysis in a pivot table in Excel or Google Sheets. And many of you have probably used pivot tables before and you already know that in order to use a pivot table, in order to pivot your data, the data has to be structured a certain way. But when a lot of people first start creating their spreadsheets in Excel or Google Sheets, they don't they don't necessarily think about putting the data into a format that works, specifically denormalizing their data. Now, what does denormalizing your data mean? It's kind of like a, uh, I would say, a database term more than an Excel term, Excel or Google Sheets term. Um, it, denormalizing actually comes from a normalized database and it's trying to, you're, the reason why this even exists in the first place for databases is, is it's trying to improve the, the read performance or the query performance of a database um, at the expense of not being able to write or edit the database really easily. In a denormalized data set, you'll typically just see data that's rep replicated multiple times. 
And in a normalized database, the tables of data are not are very unique, and the data is very "quote unquote" normalized. And the problem is that with a normalized database, queries can slow down, and it becomes harder and harder to uh, do really interesting analyses. Coincidentally, a pivot table requires your data to be denormalized so that it can quickly create groupings and pivots of your data set so that you can look at data across different aggregations, across different dimensions, of course. And the nice thing about knowing, the nice thing about structuring a data set for a pivot table is that this is also the format that a database likes to see the data. Typically in a database, you'll have like a snowflake schema where the main table is called the stats table, where it's like everything's replicated, usually for a certain dimension. And then you have for every single dimension or a unique row, there is a value. That is the type of data set that we're trying to replicate for our pivot table and in this in this exercise. So let's take a look at the data set we have here. Uh, there is a YouTube video of this episode, so you can take a look at that if you want to kind of follow along with the Google Sheet, but I'll try my best to kind of talk about this data set uh, and from a very general standpoint. The data set has two, let's say three main columns. So in one column you have state, you know, the state of the United States. The second column is metric. And the third column and beyond are months for fiscal year 2019. So it starts in October 2018. Then it goes to November, December, January, so on and so forth. In the state column, we have four different states. We have California, Illinois, Louisiana, and New York. In the metric column, we have three metrics. We have cost, households, and persons. So all this data set does is it looks at the cost, households, and persons for these four different states for all these months from October 2018 through September 2019. So in total, we have three metrics and four states. So there's 12 rows of data, just 12 rows of data. And we have costs, which is in dollars, and then households and persons are in just a regular number format. Again, this, this data is looking at the cost of the, the SNAP Public Food Assistance Program, the number of households participating, and then the number of people total. So you can kind of start seeing trends and how much the cost of the program is, what the cost per person is, the cost per household, the number of people per household that's participating. So you can find some interesting metrics on this data set. So this data set is probably similar to the way that most of people, most of your data sets out there look like when you're working in a business environment in your organization. You have a bunch of metrics in the first few columns, and then you have your data laid out by months or by quarters or by years across the subsequent columns. This is a very easy format for doing simple one-off analyses. If you're trying to find, let's say, the cost per household for this SNAP program, you can just, in the few rows below the data set, you can say, you know, cost divided by household, and you can find the number that you look, are looking for. And then you drag that number to the right to get that formula to carry across to the very the other months uh, in columns D and beyond. But what if you want to create a pivot table off this data? 
So let's try to do that right now. We're going to take, I'm just going to select all this data and go to data in Google Sheets and then just go to insert or pivot table. And you're going to get a blank pivot table that you've seen before. And if you click on the rows or the columns in the pivot table, you'll notice that it doesn't look like the normal options that you might get for a pivot table. You see all the columns that you have in your table, which are state, metric, and then October through September 2019. So if you want to see aggregate data about the cost of the SNAP program over time, you have to in the values field, in the values section of the pivot table, you have to click on every single month and add that as an option to the pivot table, which is not very like easy to use. And more importantly, the metric, if you recall, the metric is in its own column with costs, households, and persons. So if I want to find that metric, I have to add it as a column perhaps, and then I have to filter by that metric that I'm looking at. So in this case, I want to look at um, cost and I have to put the metric into the filter of the pivot table and then filter by cost, even look at the cost. So this is, again, not the normal way you might look at a pivot table. So what are the few things that we need to do in order to make this data ready? Now, if you look in, I'm just going to go ahead and jump to the solution really quick. In the and again, in the Google Sheet, you'll see the solution uh, for how you can structure this data. The two main things that we have to do to this data set is convert it from, right now there are, let's see, uh, 13, no, 14 different columns. And you need to consolidate that into five columns of data. So how do you do that? So you need to have the five columns that you need are state, period, cost, households, and persons. So what does the period look like? The period, anytime you see data that's spread across different time periods, like months in this case, uh, you have October, November, December. The first thing I think about with that is putting that into one column. And in this case, we're calling that the period column. And in column B of the data set, we have basically the number of the, the months organized by, just organized down, down the rows. So we have November, November, December, January, all the way down. And it's replicated a bunch of times because we're, we have the period now consolidated into, into one column. Now, the second thing that you need to do is put the metrics into its own into their own columns. So before we had costs, households, and persons as individual rows in the original data set. Now in the solution, we actually put cost, households, and persons into their own columns in columns C, D, and E. So for every, so the, for, for the first row, your, your data is gonna look like this. It's gonna be California, October, 2018, the cost, households, and persons for that row. And this now is something that you can now pivot or set up perfectly for a pivot table. So if I select all this data, go to data, and then go to pivot table, you can see now I can add rows that are specific to 
that are looking at different dimensions like state and period. I say I want to do state. And then for the values, I can say individual costs, households, or persons. And then I can also look at this by period. And this makes it much more easy to create a pivot table and do analysis. Another point to call out about why we wanted to move the metrics into their own columns over here from costs, households, and persons is in the original data set, if you pivot this data, you're actually mixing data types because you have costs, which is in dollars, and then households and persons are just regular numbers. So by having costs, households, and persons separated into their own columns, you're also separating the data types properly. So that's how you can organize your data set for the purposes of making this work for a pivot table. And more importantly, if this ever goes into a database, which it probably may, if your data set grows and grows over time, then this will be properly set up. I think an overall, uh, a good arch overarching rule is as new data comes in, if you're adding more data for October 2019 and November 2019, you don't want your data to grow right. You always want your data to grow down, which is what this new format allows you to do, which is new data, new data comes in and new data gets added to the rows instead of the columns, which is what you have in the original structure of the data set. How do you actually get the data to look like this from this raw data set? You can use this function, this function called transpose, which kind of gets you to where you need to go. So if I go to cell A1 of an empty spreadsheet and I say equals transpose, and I just select all the data in the original raw data set, hit enter, you'll notice that the transpose function kind of just flips everything onto another axis. So now we have the metric for state in column A, cost in California column B, column C is Illinois cost. So it just flips everything on its head and converts and just kind of like flips the axes. The problem is that, well, let's talk about the benefits. The benefits is are, are that the, the months are already kind of laid out in the right way we want, which is going from top to bottom. But the cost you'll notice is still split out by individual columns for each state. So you have to do a little bit of gymnastics to get the cost to kind of stack onto each other like this. So I might have to go copy the cost in one column and then for one state and then copy the cost for another column and another state and put them below each other. And it's going to be some manual work and you can probably write a macro to do this, but our data set right now is not too big. So we can, we're able to do this manually and it's not too hard, but if you have to do this for all the states, then of course that's probably not a scalable solution for stacking your data on top of each other. In older versions of Excel, there was a pivot table wizard where you could actually select the data, go to the pivot table wizard. And the hack is you double click in this inside of the pivot table that's created and it will automatically denormalize the data for you. Unfortunately, there's nothing like that for, for Google Sheets. So this is basically how you can do this. And the main thing I want to get across again is that this is perfect for setting up for a database. The, when you're first creating your data set in Google Sheets, it's a stopgap solution for... A successful competitor to... Um, like if you look at when Unity successfully started... Oops, sorry. It's a stopgap solution to put your data set into a spreadsheet, but then as your data set grows and more teams want to collaborate on your data, inevitably 
your data set's going to have to change so that other people can access it really quickly and also do analysis on it. And eventually that might need to go into a database anyways, because um, your corporation or organization realizes that this is core data that you need for your business. I remember working with one business recently where they had a bunch of marketing campaigns data in their spreadsheet. And they realized that this spreadsheet was getting into hundreds of thousands of rows because so many different teams were doing marketing campaigns now. And I was telling them that they just needed to put that into a database because they were trying to build out this huge data set and more and more teams were collaborating on that data set and they needed to analyze it. And using the spreadsheet just wasn't scalable because it was slow and it was easy to make mistakes. And ultimately that data probably should have belonged in a database. But again, like most Google Sheets that grow and grow and within a team or a company, it starts off simple, but then over time it gets more complicated and you have to actually think about how I can, how I can structure this for a database. All right, so that is gonna be the main topic for this episode. The two episodes I wanna talk about today from other podcasts I listen to is, the first one is from the Acquired Podcast, season seven, episode three, and it was all about Epic Games and Epic Games has been in the the news in the last few weeks because they have a little spat with well not little but a large spat with Apple in terms of how um, Apple is monetizing their their Fortnite app in the App Store. Uh, if you're not familiar with the acquired podcast, uh, Ben and David go deep into how a company starts and how it grows and eventually gets acquired potentially. And in this episode, around the one hour and one hour and fifty-three minute mark, they're talking about how iteration can apply to not just capital, not just capital compounding, um, but how it can be also be applied to an agile engineering perspective. And in the show notes, I'm just going to read quickly what they say. Iteration is a standard dogma in startups and engineering. And compounding is a standard dogma in value investing. In practice, they're two sides of the same coin. The small iterations that Epic does year in and year out on both the Unreal Engine and Fortnite, plus other GAAS, I guess games as a games as a service exper- games as a service experiences, compound to create extraordinary value. Or put another way, within operating businesses like Epic, dollars don't just compound on their own. Retained earnings need to be redeployed every day to, de- to build the next feature or service that future developers and non-developers can build on top of. So I thought it was pretty interesting hearing about how when you think about dollars compounding, it's really similar to the concept of how you do kind of like the lean startup method where you do something, get instant feedback, and then you continually iterate and change your process until you grow and your process becomes more efficient. And the way they describe it in the context of Epic Games is they're basically plowing money back into developing the Unreal Engine. And it's really similar to capital compounding because as the engine gets more developed and more easy to use perhaps for engineers, not engineers, it just allows better games to be built, such as Fortnite. Uh, so I thought it was an interesting perspective to look at iteration and comparing it, or iteration from the classic sense of working in engineering and product development standpoint, comparing it to uh, 
just regular dollars compounding that, you know, everyone talks about how, you know, the, one of the classic tenets of, of, of compounding is that it just continually generates interest and it creates value for you as an investor. But, uh, in the context of developing technology and developing a product, I think that iteration also can apply. And that's what they talk about in this episode. Um, so I think this applies to really any company that's working on building a product that, um, helps other people and helps them create and make things, um, whether you're an engineer or not an engineer, that constant process of iteration really empowers other people to build their own products and services on top of your platform. Um, so I think there's a, a note to be said about constantly thinking about change and iteration for your products, because it's really similar to just getting compounding interest on an investment over for, uh, for capital. So take a listen to that episode. If more, if anything, just to hear how like Epic games has grown and how they've, um, got to where they are right now in terms of their current, uh, disagreement, I guess you can say with uh, Apple over how they charge for downloading Fortnite in their, um, in their app store. And I think the iteration also applies to Fortnite in, how, in terms of, I think Fortnite probably wasn't a hit in the very beginning, but then over time as the developers changed Fortnite and made it easier to play, um, more and more people signed up and you can maybe say each, every individual user that signs up to play is kind of interest, so to speak for that investment. So that is the one episode I would really, really like to call out for this episode. And then the next episode is, I, th- I think it's a relatively new podcast and it comes from, I, I heard it on the Freakonomics podcast and it's called People I Mostly Admire with uh, Stephen Levitt. And in this episode, episode number two, Stephen Levitt interviews, I'm going to butcher her name, Mayim Bialik. And she is famously known to play Amy Fowler in the Big Bang Theory. And I was a big fan of the show. And for those of you who don't know, um, Mayim, Mayim, I'm going to constantly say her name wrong, I guess. Mayim, she is also a PhD, I believe, student that was also studying neuroscience. So she played, basically kind of played herself in the show. And around minute 23, um, they're talking about how, uh, or Stephen Levitt is talking about how you should potentially, could potentially do away with teachers and kind of work with people like Amy, who are great communicators and very thoughtful people to teach hundreds of thousands of people online via, you know, a MOOC or an online, uh, video technology, online video platform like YouTube or whatever. And they're just talking about how they, you can flip the education system on its head by not necessarily doing away with teachers, but just changing the, the way that you source quote unquote teachers to teach students who may also f- learn better from these better, more interesting communicators. And they talked about this one concept I'm not too familiar with, too familiar with called the education production function. And the education production function, education production function talks about some classically education inputs that you'll put into a system to, into the, into the education system to get out certain outputs. So those classic inputs into that function include class size, teacher experience, 
and teacher education. And with those inputs in this function, the output is supposed to be better student outcomes, uh, better success for the students. Uh, but it's, there are many statistics that show that the there have been many differences in teacher quality and um, the teacher quality is not really re closely related to the uh, salaries and other aspects of teachers when it comes to student outcomes. So there is a misalignment between um, the quality of teachers and what their salaries are and how that relates to the successful outcomes of students. So if you think about the different out, the different input inputs into this production function for the education system, Stephen Levitt and May and Bialik are talking about different inputs that would matter to lead to successful student outcomes. And this day and age, they're talking about the teacher is a good communicator, which I think that's already a standard for most teachers, but maybe that's a more call out for the production function. And the teacher has to be uh, perhaps very knowledgeable about a very specific field where they can t talk about that intelligently. I think one of the most important inputs for the production function is probably uh, industry experience for that field so that they can speak to, this is what it's like to actually use bioorganic chemistry in a lab, for instance, when you're talking about how you can uh, apply that knowledge to have successful student outcomes. So I thought it was really interesting just hearing about, basically it's a, a call out to have more online student learning and because that allows for you to increase the access of content and education to students, but also leads to sourcing teachers from places you wouldn't otherwise find. And in this case, um, Miam talks about how she was able to teach uh, different students neuroscience, um, I think thousands of students through her own platform online. And she was able to reach a whole you know, group of students that she wouldn't, normal, wouldn't normal, normally reach. I think you're seeing the rise of all these different online education systems and MOOC platforms that speak to this trend where anyone can teach anything as long as you have an interest in it and you're a good communicator. And you know, me personally, I found a lot of success with, you know, teaching on Skillshare and other platforms because of my, you know, real world experience with Excel and Google Sheets and being able to explain those concepts and what I think hopefully is a very clear and methodical way of learning the program and the platform. And hopefully this, this episode just shines a light on teachers like me and other people that have specific experience domain expertise and can contribute to uh, you know, students learning in our current education system and also provide different inputs into uh, the production, the education production function as it were. So that is the second episode I wanted to call out and that will be it for this episode. Uh, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.